Well, at the end of our last lesson, we learned of the grief of mind which Esau, the eldest twin son of Isaac and Rebekah, had caused his parents by his marriage to two, not one, but two Hittite women. It was just another evidence of the, the uh, unconcern which Esau had for God's standards of holiness and for God's special purposes for the Abrahamic line. So with that dark, bleak background fresh on our minds, the uh, opening verses of Genesis chapter 27 are rather disappointing because we discover that in spite of Esau's indifference, to his spiritual heritage, which was demonstrated not only by his selling of the birthright, but also by the, his marriage to two Canaanites. And in spite of God's clear revelation given to Rebekah before the birth of their twin sons, that the younger was to rule over the elder, and in spite of the obvious uh, superiority of Jacob's spirituality over Esau's and in spite of Jacob's legal right and claim to the patriarchal blessing by way of his purchase of that birthright which was sealed by Esau's oath in spite of all these things yet what we see now is Isaac determining to still give the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant to his worldly, carnal, unbelieving son Esau. It's a real blemish on the character of Isaac. However, as we will see in this very sad chapter, Isaac's plan doesn't work. It actually backfires on him because in the end, he does exactly what he attempted not to do. He ends up by fulfilling God's plan as it was revealed back in Genesis 25:23, that prophecy given to pregnant Rebekah. And Isaac winds up blessing Jacob instead of Esau. You all know this story. You've probably known it since you were children. But, of course, in the process, Isaac's attempt to thwart God's plans causes every single member of his family to sin. So we could say, really, as a spiritual leader, Isaac's sin is the worst of all. And it's really amazing to think, amazing to think that a man who at one point in his life had been so very Christ-like, and when was that? Genesis chapter 22 on Mount Moriah. So Christ-like. It was a beautiful picture of Christ in that chapter. So to think that at one time he could be so very Christ-like, yet at another time in his life, he's so very un-Christ-like. And that's how we find him in chapter 27. Yet that's really not unusual if we really get to thinking about it, because um, it's very typical of our own lives, of each and every one of us. We, at one point in our lives, may reflect the love and the grace and the faith of Christ very, very beautifully. You know, we may be a strong Christian example at some time in our lives, and yet at other times or stages in our lives, we might reflect the worst, right, worst aspects of our natural man, our carnal man. You know, and really proving that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So. The pathetic turn of the truth of the matter here and the turn of events is really, um, whether we like to admit it or not, it is very much like ourselves, what we see in this chapter. And the main 
the main truth, the main biblical principle to, to get from this entire episode is that in spite of the opposition to God's sovereign will and God's sovereign purposes, which come from Isaac and which come from the other members of his family or in our lives, which might come from us, God's will, in spite of all that, God's will is always, always accomplished because he can even take our sins and turn them for good, right? What man meant for evil, he can turn to good. That's the primary lesson to learn from this chapter. Now, as we look at the contents of Genesis 27, we're going to do it in two lessons. And uh, as we do this, we have to remind ourselves that we are peering we are peering into events which occurred in a believer's home. This isn't an unbelieving family. This is a believer's family. And in this fact, we have a strong warning of what can happen to even the godliest of homes when one or more of its members tries to take matters into their own hands and do things their way instead of God's way. Isaac's sin, now remember, he is the spiritual leader. His sin is, he's the most guilty. But his sin led to Rebekah's sin, his wife's sin, and her sin led to Jacob's sin, and Jacob's sin led to Esau's sin. So you see the domino effect that we have there? No man is an island unto himself. Yet the terrible situation which resulted in a divided family did not just develop in a single day even though this takes place in one day this didn't it wasn't it was a long time festering we've seen that how did it start it started when they were born the children were born and uh, we saw parental favoritism on the on the part of the parents and then last week we talked about a lack of fatherly guidance and discipline regarding sibling resentments and uh, rivalries which had been brewing for many years the father should have stepped in and, and handled this long time before and but because these issues had not been addressed by the spiritual head of the family but they but were in fact for only further aggravated by his continual favoritism of the wrong son I mean he shouldn't have favored either one but to favor the wrong son all this caused a tragic splitting in the family and this lesson entitled a divided family is going to begin our two-part look at this chapter it's a long chapter there's 46 verses in it so we're going to try to cover the first 27 verses this morning as we look at uh, well we have four divisions and this morning we're going to look at Isaac the dim division Rebecca the determined venture and Jacob the deceptive victory and next time, Lord willing, we're going to look at the last two verses under this section, verses 28 and 29, under Jacob the Deceptive Victory. And then we're going to discuss Esau. You don't have this on your outline, but the fourth section of the chapter is Esau, the Deadly Vengeance. So that's where we're headed. Let's get started now. Look at verses 1 to 4, Isaac. We're going to talk about Isaac and his dimmed vision. Genesis 27, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass that when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his eldest son, and said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold now, I am old. I know not the day of my death. 
Now therefore take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver, and thy bow, and go out into the field, out to the field, and take me some venison. And make me savory meat, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. Well, the first thing that we learn about Isaac consists of two physical characteristics. What are they? First of all, he's old. Secondly, we find out that he is blind. It says his eyes were dim. By piecing together other scripture verses, which I won't give you right now, but trust me on this, it can be figured that Isaac in this chapter is now about 135 years old, somewhere between 135 and 137 years old. And this means because his sons were born when he was 60, that means that in this chapter, and this might be new to you because a lot of pictures show Jacob and Esau relatively young, but they were 75 years old at the time of this chapter, 75 years old, these two boys. Now, whether, just don't get tricked by a lot of the pictures. Even some of the pictures I'm going to show you this morning are not accurate. But uh, we, we don't know. A lot of pictures have Isaac bedridden in this story. Whether he was or not, the scripture doesn't tell us, although many have pictured him that way. Um, what we do know is that his eyesight was so poor it says that he could not see he was blind enough we find out as we read through the chapter that he had to touch people and he had to listen to their voices in order to figure out who they were you know this is before the day of, of glasses now the tragedy is that poor vision was also a factor spiritually his spiritual vision had also dimmed with age that's the real sad part. Although the good news is that by the end of the chapter, it's improved quite a bit, his spiritual vision. Now, it's significant to notice in this chapter many references to the senses, to the five senses. Sight is mentioned, hearing, smell, touch, and taste. They're all featured in this narrative. And this emphasis on the natural senses of Isaac, I think, serves to stress his backslidden spiritual condition. All throughout the first part of the chapter, he's trusting in his senses, you see, rather than uh, trusting in and obeying God's word. He attempts to use what we could call the scientific approach through an empirical test, you know, by touching and... Well, one thing he can't do is see, but he tries to trust in all of his other senses. The only sense which, which did not fail Isaac was his sense of hearing. But although it was the one that he should have trusted the most, it was the only one that he ignored. So that's interesting also. We'll talk more about that. Well, Isaac was rather pessimistic about his physical condition because when he called his eldest son Esau before him, he both began and ended his conversation with Esau with words about his impending death. He made it sound as, all, as though he already had one foot in the grave, you know, and the other on a banana peel when he talked about his death. Uh, but the truth of the matter is that Isaac lived another 43 to 45 years after this. So
so he was hardly at the point of death. It might be that Isaac was um, thinking about his brother. His brother Ishmael had died when he was 137 years old. And you see, that's Isaac's age at this time. So he's being very, you know, uh, down in the mouth and kind of depressed here, thinking that he probably has not much longer to live. However, we find in this chapter that Isaac still had a very good appetite. If we count, we will find that the little term savory meat is, is used six times in this chapter. That's the number of man. <laughs> Venison is mentioned seven times, and eating is mentioned eight times. And they're all in connection with who? With Isaac. And not only does this re-emphasize his obsession with food, which we discovered was the reason for his love for his firstborn son, remember? So he has a, an obsession with food. Uh, it's a similar, who inherited that obsession? His son Esau inherited that obsession for food because that's why he sold his birthright, was for a pot of beans. Um, so not only does all this mention of food reemphasize his obsession with it, but it also tells us something of his true health condition. A good appetite is not something which is found in a person who's about to die. All right. So we know it was wise. It was indeed wise for Isaac to take care of such an important spiritual matter as the giving of the, the patriarchal blessing because it was his duty to do this before he did die. And of course, at 137, you don't know that you do have tomorrow. <laughs> right? But uh, he was, we do find out that he was not at the point of death like he makes it sound because he did live another approximately 45 years. And also he does have a wonderful appetite in this chapter. Well, the blessing of the father was a most significant event and especially would this be true in the family, the descendants of Abraham. The giving of the blessing was the time when the father would transfer the birthright and the family inheritance to his son. Usually it would be to the eldest son. However, if the elder son proved unworthy, then the father could pass it along to another son, a younger son. In the case of Isaac, both the birthright and the blessing would include the very special promises that God had made to Abraham regarding the promised land, you know, the land of Israel, and also the promised seed, the Savior, the coming Messiah. Furthermore, the occasion of the blessing was not necessarily limited to just the elder son. It could, in fact, involve all of the sons, and we find this is true. For example, in Genesis 49, when dying Jacob pronounced his words of blessing on all 12 of his sons. In Isaac's situation, the blessing was very important. It was not to be left up to his own choice because the revealed will and the revealed mind of God himself had already been given in this matter. It was given even before Isaac's two boys were born. God had made it very clear that the blessing was for Jacob and not Esau. And yet it was Esau and only Esau who Isaac called into his presence here in this chapter. Isaac was right, therefore, in what he wanted to do, 
but he was wrong in the way he went about doing it and he was wrong in determining to give it to Esau instead of Jacob Isaac's decision to bless Esau privately within his own tent and not invite the other members of the family to the ceremony that's, that fact sits very suspect on his character the time of the patriarchal blessing was a very a special it was a very special occasion in which the whole family was uh, if possible they, the whole family was to attend and uh, and enjoy and celebrate and afterward afterward was often celebrated with a family feast so the secrecy here of Isaac's talk with Esau tells us a couple of things first of all it tells us that he was scheming just as much as anybody else in this account he was attempting to keep from both his wife Rebecca and from his younger son Jacob that which he was about to do with his elder son it also tells us that Isaac must have had his own doubts about the righteousness of what he was doing if if your conscience is clear you see and you know that what you're doing is right then you don't have to do any, any, what you're going to do in secrecy behind closed doors you know you don't have to do it by way of deception and secrecy that's why you stay away from any kind of an organization that has secret rights or something you know the truth can be right out in the light exposed to to all the light that there is has nothing to hide now why we ask the question why should Isaac's conscience bother him in this matter well for one thing of course Isaac knew about the prophecy that God gave to his wife while she was still pregnant with the twins he knew that God's will was for Jacob to receive the blessing he also knew how very little Esau cared about spiritual matters when he sold his birthright for a, a pot of red lentil stew and also when he later married two pagan women in fact Esau's marriage to those Canaanite women actually disqualified him from receiving the patriarchal blessing of Abraham and of Isaac Esau's disregard for spiritual matters actually disqualified him even before he married those two pagan women and Isaac surely knew better here he surely did know better yet we find that he privately called Esau before him and he commanded him to take up his weapons his you know his quiver and his bow and go out into the field to get some venison to make him savory meat such as he loved you notice it says such as he loved again in verse 4 and then his plan was that once he had eaten he was he was going to bless Esau before he died now his command was not only contrary to custom as we've already talked about in that generally the entire family was invited to something like this but it was also carnal so contrary to custom and carnal it was carnal in that Isaac desired to have his physical appetite appeased before he then performed his spiritual duty did the Lord Jesus follow that pattern you feed them first and then give them the message no you give the message first and then you feed the people 
And that's the way that, that it always should be. You know, even with missionaries, you don't go over there and feed them and clothe them and then give them the message because once they have the food and the clothes there or the medicine, they're going to disappear. You give them the message first and then you feed and clothe them. But he wanted to eat before he performed his spiritual duty. And we've already mentioned that Isaac did have a problem with food because this was his primary reason for loving Esau. He loved the taste of savory venison. And it actually tells us this four times in the scripture, how much he loved savory uh, game meat. It's really sad, you know, when believers, remember we're talking about believers here, when believers make important spiritual decisions on the basis of their love for something carnal. Do we see this happening? all the time and we call this being ruled by one's flesh or ruled by one's appetite and as we know people yes even Christians can definitely be ruled by their appetite for such things as food (laughs) or alcohol or cigarettes drugs uh, pleasure whatever well, his, his um, command was not, or his, what he was going to do was not only contrary to custom and carnal, but it was also cruel. It was cruel to Jacob because Isaac was going to deprive Jacob of the blessing which was rightfully his. Now, many people I know have looked at this 27th chapter of Genesis and they have talked primarily of who being the deceiver. Jacob. You always hear about Jacob. Jacob the beguiler, Jacob the deceiver, beguiling his father. And as wrong as that was, of course, we do have to remember that Jacob would not have done all of this. He wouldn't have deceived his father if his father had not first attempted to beguile or deceive him. Both were wrong. Definitely, both father and son were wrong. Both sinned. But as the spiritual leader of the family and as the one who initiated this whole, this whole domino effect, this whole mess, by disobeying God's revealed words, Isaac is more to blame than anybody. As the authoritative head of the home, Isaac misused his authority by going against the will of God. The command of Isaac to Esau also turned out to be not only cruel to Jacob, but it turned out to be cruel to Esau as well. At the end of this chapter, we won't get to that this week, but next week, Lord willing, we're going to see at the end that Esau is in a very pathetic state of mind. He grieves very heavily over the turn of events, and he's then filled with an anger which is so intense that what does he want to do? Right. He wants to take revenge on his brother by killing him. And all this, if you think about it, this is true. All of this could have been avoided if Isaac would have taken the time years earlier to reasonably explain to Esau how he had absolutely no choice in the matter. He, the father, had no choice in the matter. I mean, he could have sat down with him and done all this very compassionately. He could have made it firm like his father Abraham had done with Hagar and Ishmael, that God's will could not be circumvented. 
that he had no choice. He had to do what God said. Furthermore, Isaac should have made it clear to Esau that even his own actions, you know, when he sold his birthright to his brother and when he married two pagan women, had had only gone to demonstrate that God's prophecy to Rebekah had been, you know, correct. It had been it had proven correct and Esau himself had proven it by his own free will and his own choices. Esau had disqualified himself from the patriarchal blessing. And so he should have been made to see his own sin rather than being allowed to blame and hate Jacob, his brother, so much that he wanted to kill him. Isaac, the father, should never, ever have allowed the situation to continue unresolved for 75 years because uh, God had, it was that long, because God had actually revealed his will to him through his wife before these two boys were even born, or men, I should say. 75 years old, you can't call them boys, can you? So it was Isaac's neglect to handle the problem earlier on and his continual favoring of Esau, which caused Esau to feel confident about receiving his father's blessing and which led eventually to Esau's pathetic ending that we'll see in this chapter. You know, he he held out great hope that he was going to get his father's blessing right up till the end, and that's why it devastated him so much when he found out he didn't get it. All right, well, that's part one. That's Isaac, the dimmed vision. Oh, why do I have that up there yet? I shouldn't have that up there yet. I'm jumping the gun. And let's move along now and look at Rebecca, the determined venture, verses 5 to 17. And under this, we have five subdivisions. We're going to look at the perception, the plan, the problem, the promise, and the preparation. We'll begin with the perception. And for that, I'm just going to read verse 5. And Rebecca heard when Isaac spake to Esau his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt for venison and to bring it. What we have here in contrast to the dimming vision of Isaac is the acute hearing of Rebekah. It seems, I had to laugh about this, it seems to have been a common custom back in Bible days for women to frequently eavesdrop on the conversations of their husbands. Now, we don't do that today, do we? We try not to. (laughs) Oh, my children say my favorite pastime is eavesdropping. You know, standing at their doors when they're on the phone or something. (laughs) Well, we we remember Sarah had done this exact same thing back in Genesis 18.10, and now her daughter-in-law is doing it. The Hebrew word, which is uh, used here for heard, where it says Rebecca heard, that that is uh, actually means was listening. <laughs> Not that she just happened to walk by and accidentally heard. It, she was listening. She had not been invited to listen, but she was she was listening anyway. She was purposely listening to the entire conversation that Isaac had with Esau. Rebecca might have been suspecting that something like this would take place, and she was probably on alert every time she saw Esau go into her husband's tent. And she might have even had all of the servants on alert, you know, that they were to run to her and tell her any time that Esau was called into his father's tent. It's, it's really a sad thing, you know, when a husband and a wife cannot trust one another. 
but that's exactly what we have here. It's obvious that Isaac did not trust Rebecca. That's why he tried to do this whole thing in secrecy. Um, otherwise, he would have told her what he was going to do. And she obviously did not trust her husband. And that's obvious by her, her intentional eavesdropping. She seemed to sense that Isaac's love for Esau might cause him to disobey God and give to Esau what was right, rightfully Jacob's. So she was on alert, and there she was, you know, with her ears open, and she heard the whole thing. Twice in the last two chapters, Genesis 26 and 27, two times we find Isaac trying to hide his sins. He, he tried to hide his lie from Rebecca. I mean, about Rebecca. Excuse me. He tried to lie, hide his sin about Rebecca from Abimelech, you know, the king of the Philistines in Genesis chapter 26. And now we find that he tried to hide his sin from Rebecca. So first of all, he tried to hide his sin about Rebecca, now from Rebecca. And this time, also to his shame, he was again discovered. So what does this illustrate for us? Be sure your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, 23. Now, Rebecca, at this point, should have immediately... I'm always going to tell you what they should have done, all right? Not that I always do the right thing, but it's easy to look at somebody else's mistakes and say, oh, this is what you should have done. Rebecca should have immediately gone before her husband and confronted him with the error of what he was about to do. In love, all right? In love, she should have rebuked him for attempting to circumvent the divine plan of God which had been revealed before the birth of Esau and Jacob. She should have in love reminded him that even if he didn't believe her words about what God had said to her, because remember God didn't speak to Isaac. He had to believe his wife. She told him what God had said to her. So even if he didn't believe what she told him that God had said to her back then when that struggle was taking place in her womb, uh, even even if he didn't believe that, still Esau had disqualified himself by selling his birthright to his brother and by his ungodly marriages. And she should have reminded Isaac of that. She should have told him how it pained her, how it hurt her to know that he was going to give the blessing in secrecy. And then she should have told him that uh, she would take the matter before the Lord and she would ask the Lord to intervene and have Isaac do the right thing. At that point, she should have just simply left the matter up to the Lord and trusted him to take care of the rest of the situation with her husband. But what she failed to do is she failed to understand that God's will is fulfilled whether men cooperate with him or not. Her faith in God's sovereignty and her faith in God's power was not sufficient, you see, for her to realize that God could override her husband's intentions. Now let's think for a minute what God could have done to remedy this situation. He could have, I mean, God is God, so he could have done any number of things to remedy this but he could have kept every deer out of the the, the entire vicinity around where the family lived um, until I, Esau came back totally exhausted 
and empty-handed. And God could have done that not just this day, but he could have done it every day for 100 days, for 300 days, whatever, until Isaac finally realized that God was against what he was trying to do. Or, I mean, that's just... I just throw that out as one of my thoughts. Or he, the Lord could have simply caused Isaac to go temporarily mute when he opened his mouth to speak the blessing on Esau. Or, as he did with Balaam, God could have changed the words which came out of Isaac's mouth. Or um, he could have appeared to Isaac and um, spoken to him directly and audibly, you know, out from, or he could have, he could have appeared to him, and then, or he could have spoken to him audibly from heaven, commanding him to not bless Esau, but to bless Jacob. After all, the Lord had done this when Isaac was on his way down to Egypt, right? He appeared to him and he spoke to him, and Isaac obeyed, didn't he? So he could have done that. The point is that there would have been some way, whatever it would have been, there would have been some way in which God would have overruled the situation and his will would have been fulfilled even if Rebekah had not interfered. He didn't need Rebekah, in other words, to, to fulfill his plan. Actually, as I said before, God is so absolutely sovereign that he can even use the wrongs of man and he works them all out so that they do end up fulfilling his plan and purposes anyway. And that's exactly what he does in this chapter. Isaac sinned by trying to alter God's plan. Rebecca sinned by trying to help God's plan through deceit. But in the end, God used both of their evils and he turned them for his good. Because why? Because his word cannot return void. He said the younger would serve the, the elder would serve the younger and that would be fulfilled. The blessing would go to the younger. Well, as soon as Esau left his father's presence to go into the field to hunt for that venison, Rebekah um, went and found Jacob. And she told Jacob all that she had overheard his father speak to his brother. Now, can you imagine being Jacob at this point in time? It must have really hurt Jacob to learn of his father's secret plan with his brother. It was just one more indication of his father's favoritism toward his brother. It also must have hurt Jacob in that his heart had been fixed on receiving his father's blessing which would seal the matter of the messianic lineage, which he so coveted. I mean, he really had his heart focused on, on getting um, the Abrahamic promises. So the pain and the hurt must have been written all over his face at the secret plan, you know, hearing about the secret plan that his father intended to carry out behind his, his back. And his mother, of course, would have been sensitive to any look of pain on her favorite son's face and therefore she acted in the natural way not in the spiritual way she acted in the flesh and she had a plan of action which she was then ready to reveal to Jacob now whether she was quick in her mind to come up with this plan on the spur of the moment or I tend to agree more with the second alternative, whether she had previously given a whole lot of thought to what she would do if something like this happened. We don't know for sure. 
But this would have been a lot for her to think of just spur of the moment. But anyway, we do know that she was a strong-willed, quick-thinking, resourceful woman of action. And her plan with Jacob gives us ample evidence of, of her character, of all her characteristics. So let's look at her plan, verses 6 to 10. And Rebekah spake unto Jacob her son, saying, Behold, I heard thy father speak unto Esau thy brother, saying, Bring me venison and make me savory meat, that I may eat and bless thee before the Lord before my death. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice according to that which I command thee. Go now to the flock and fetch me from thence two good kids of the goats, and I will make them savory meat for thy father, such as he loveth. And thou shalt bring it to thy father, that he may eat, and that he may bless thee before his death. Rebecca here was going to outsmart her husband, and her rationale for doing so was probably justified in her sight. After all, she was only attempting to agree with God, right? So I'm sure she had no problem justifying what she was doing. Now, her, of course, we know that her plan was sinful. It was sinful in a number of ways. Lack of wifely submission being one. Purposeful deceit, number two. Coercing her son to deceive and lie to his own father, number three. But primarily... The way in which her plan was sinful was that it was, as we said, an offense to God's sovereignty. She did not trust God to fulfill his own promise regarding Jacob. She felt that she had to help God out, just like Sarah thought she had to help God out and brought Hagar into the picture. In, in Rebecca's mind, at this point, God was just not powerful enough to carry out his plans without her assistance. Even if God had been in a difficulty here, which is impossible, isn't it? Can God ever be in a difficulty? No. But even if God had been in a difficulty, still he would not need or desire deceptive means to assist him in carrying out his purposes. Now the foundation of her plan was her husband's blindness. Because Isaac could not see, she was going to get e uh, Jacob to pretend that he was Esau. And therefore, Jacob would receive the blessing from his father, who would think that he was actually giving it to Esau. Apparently, Rebekah must have harbored some doubt in her mind that Jacob would go along with this plan. So what she does here is she stresses her authority over him. You know, her language contains a lot of authority. And it makes it even ludicrous when you think of the fact that Jacob here is 75 years old. <laughs> and here his mother is commanding. She says uh, right away, even before presenting her plan, you know, she doesn't tell him what she's going to do, but immediately she says, obey my voice. And then she says, I command thee. And in verse 13, she, she again, she ends her plan by saying, only obey my voice. This is a, a domin, domineering kind of a woman, mother, isn't she? Now, her instructions to Jacob were to go out to their goat flock and find two young kids, which she would then prepare in such a way that she uh, would make them taste like the savory meat that her husband so dearly loved. Now, once this young goat meat was prepared, Jacob was to take it to his father, 
pretending to be Esau. And then the plan was that Isaac would bless him, thinking that instead he was blessing his oldest son. Now, it's interesting to notice that in this episode, Esau is described as Isaac's son. Look at verse 5. Esau is described as Isaac's son, and Jacob is described as Rebekah's son. Verse 6. So don't we see here again that this, this is the tragic consequence of their parental favoritism. The family is divided. Even before the end of this chapter, we find that the family is already divided. It's father and eldest son against mother and youngest son. Okay, let's look now at the problem. There was a slight problem that Jacob came up with here. And for this, let's look at verses 11 and 12. And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. My father, peradventure, will feel me, and I shall seem to him as a deceiver, and I shall bring a curse upon me and not a blessing. Jacob knew, of course, that the blessing should go to him, and he knew that his father was not honoring the Lord's will or even completely honoring the transaction which he and Esau had made years earlier with the birthright. Even still here, he should have trusted God to work things out. He should have told his mother right away that he was not going to go along with her scheme and deceive his own father because that would be wrong. He should have encouraged his mother to, uh, to trust God in this matter. But he didn't do it, did he? You know, it's easy, to, again, to tell you what everybody should have done. He was only, here we find him, he, he, um, his concern with his mother's plan was not that she was asking him to do something wrong, to lie and deceive his father, but his concern was really that he might get caught. <laughs> so in effect, his concern had to do with the question, uh, is it safe rather than is it right? That was his big thing. We could say really that in this episode, Isaac's thinking was something like, if it feels good, you know, remember all of his senses, he's going by his feelings. If it feels good, it must be okay. Rebecca's thinking was that the end justifies the means. And Isaac's thinking, I mean, Jacob's thinking is that if I can get away with it, it will be okay. It all will be well. Uh, so he should have incur he should have done the right thing with his mother and at 75 years of age especially you know he was a man he should have told his mother no I'm not going to do that that's night not right but he only worried about the fact that because his brother was hairy <laughs> and he wasn't that his father being blind would probably reach out to feel him and then the deception would be discovered and instead of receiving his father's much coveted blessing he would receive a curse upon himself well once again we find now that his mother had a ready answer even for this concern so we're going to look next at the, the promise that she makes to her son's problem and for this we'll look at verse 13 well all right the promise verse 13 and his mother said unto him upon me be thy curse my son only obey my voice and go fetch me them she was so completely convinced that the cause behind her planning was just, you know, that it was right, that she was readily willing to bear Isaac's or God's curse if their plan or her plan failed. 
her absolute dedication to Jacob and her willingness to forfeit, forfeit her own welfare are rather impressive here. You know, she would take the curse in the place of her son. But the reference to a curse does seem to be kind of a warning of potential danger ahead. And as we know, the, the sad outcome of this episode is that Rebecca had to send her dearly beloved Jacob away from her that very day. And she never saw him again in this world. And so this, we, we could say, was in effect suffering from some kind of a curse. She also probably lost her other son, Esau, who would be very, very upset and angry with her over what she did. Well, again, we note that Rebecca called on Jacob, even though he was approximately 75 years of age, to obey her voice and to go ahead quickly and get the two young kids that she asked for so she could begin to prepare them. So let's look at the preparation, verses 14 to 17. <clears throat> and he went and fetched and brought them, the goats, to his mother. And his mother made savory meat such as his father loved. And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them upon Jacob, her younger son. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats upon his hands and upon the smooth of his neck, and she gave the savory meat and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Having received his mother's repeated authoritative command to, you know, shut up and simply obey, <laughs> as well as having received her promise to take the consequence upon herself if the plan didn't work, Jacob had no further objections. Do we hear anything more about it from him? You know, I cannot do this. This is wrong. No, we hear nothing more. He went out to get the two young goats that his mother had asked for, and she took them and she prepared the meat in such a way as his father loved. In other words, so that it would taste like venison. And then in verses 15 to 17, we find the various aspects of her entire deceptive plan begin to emerge. After cooking... She obtained from her own home, you know, obviously Esau visited her quite a bit and had left some raiment there, some clothing. And she took Esau's clothing and she put it on Jacob. You'll see these pictures I'm going to be showing in a little while don't have any, they don't have the clothing on him. So that's another way in the, which the pictures are wrong. Instead, they have this, all this hair on him, which isn't actually correct. But anyhow, that's another story. But she did put on some of Esau's goodly raiment. And the, the Hebrew word which is translated for goodly actually speaks of a festive garment. So she, um, she put on one of Esau's festive garments. And it was also um, a garment which would carry with it the smell of Esau himself. And so she was thinking about her husband smelling his son to see if he truly was Esau and we find in verse 27 that the garment smelled like Esau like you know a man who was a man of the field well being very thorough Rebecca then took the skins of the two kids of the goats and somehow or another and I don't like this picture because that isn't how she would have done it but she would have taken some of the fine goat hair and she would have attached or glued it to it says to the hands of um, Jacob 
and to the smooth skin of his neck, probably, you know, around here, just around his neck, not all the way over his shoulders like that, because, see, he would have had the garment there instead of the hair. So she did this in case Isaac would touch him. And then, of course, he would feel hairy like his brother Esau. And then she gave, after all this preparation, she gave the pot of savory goat meat disguised to taste like Esau's venison. And she put it, along with something to drink, some wine to drink and some bread, into Jacob's goat-covered hands (laughs) disguised to feel like Esau's hands. And wearing Esau's clothing... So as to have the smell of the field, like his brother Jacob, was almost fully equipped. I mean, he was ready. His, his mother had, had very cleverly taken care of deceiving Isaac's senses. His senses of taste, his sense of smell, and his sense of touch. And she didn't need to be concerned about, what, his sense of sight because he was blind. However, there was very little she could do about another sense, right? The sense of hearing. Um, Because Jacob would have to definitely speak in his father's presence, and his voice was not the voice of Esau. I'm sure he probably tried to imitate Esau's voice, but, you know, you know your children's voices pretty well, don't you? And so it didn't, we find out it didn't work. We'll find that out in verse 22. Yet even though Isaac's ears told him one thing, he went along with his other senses. He went along with his sense of taste, smell, and touch, and he was fooled by his wife's deceptive preparation and his son's deceptive performance. So let's look at that performance. Jacob, the deceptive victory And under this section, we've got, actually, we have five divisions, but we're not going to look at the fifth one until next week. In closing, we're going to look at deceptive, his deceptive conversation, his deceptive covering, his deceptive cooking, and the deceptive kiss. Okay? So we will start with the deceptive conversation, verses 18 to 20. And he, this is Jacob, came unto his father and said, My father, and he... Isaac said, Here am I, who art thou, my son? And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that thou hast found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. When Jacob entered into his father's presence, here he says, my father. And what does Isaac answer him? He says, here am I. And right away, it's a little strange, right away we find out that Isaac asked for identification. This might tell us one of two things. Where he says, you know, who art thou, my son? It might tell us that um, Isaac was a little bit suspicious that Esau would return so soon. Actually, he even asked that, you know, why'd you, why, how are you here so quickly? And or it might tell us that although he was waiting for the return of Esau, yet he detected the voice of who? Of Jacob. He was waiting for Esau, and yet his sense of hearing detected the voice of Jacob. I think it's actually both reasons, you know. He wondered how he could get here so soon, 
and also he thought that sounded like Jacob. So immediately we find with Isaac's question, who art thou my son? Immediately Jacob is forced to do one of two things. What? Tell the truth or tell a lie. He could tell the truth and then he would have to explain, you know, why he was there and, you know, about the deceptive plan he and his mother were both involved in. Or, to make things easier on him, he could just simply tell a lie. We know that the die had already been cast in his mind and in his heart, and so he spoke his first lie. If you want to put first lie next to um, verse 19, actually actually the first part of verse 19, because he tells two lies in that one verse. He told his father that he was Esau his firstborn son. That's lie number one. Now, it's rarely possible, rarely possible to achieve a crooked end by telling just one lie because of the fact that lies breed more lies. And this was definitely true in Jacob's case in this chapter. Immediately after he lied about his identity, he added a second lie. So put second lie, also verse 19. He told his father that he had done what he had been bidden to do. Now, of course, he was making a reference to what Isaac had told Esau to do, right? But Jacob Jacob himself had not been bidden to do anything by his father. So it was a lie. It was his second lie. One lie had led to another lie very quickly. Um, Jacob then told his father to sit down and eat of his venison. Did he have venison? No. All right, you want to put down lie number three? (laughs) Jacob didn't have wild game venison for his father to eat. He had tame goat meat. And so this was already... His third lie. Now Isaac, seemingly still suspicious about things, probably most of all Jacob's voice, he asks another question of his son. He asked him how he found the venison so quickly. And this presented another rather awkward moment. And Jacob's response put him in even deeper, deeper peril. Because not only did he tell a fourth lie, but this time he deceived his father by bringing God into the picture. He used God's name. He said, um, because the Lord thy God brought it to me. Now notice he's trying to be Esau. So he doesn't say the Lord my God. He says the Lord thy God. That's worth noticing. He's pretending to be Esau. Esau Esau is not a believer. So he says, the Lord thy God brought it to me. But so he's in his lie, he's bringing God into his deception. And this is, you know, blasphemy here. Obviously, there was still something a little bit fishy about the situation. I should say a little bit goaty. <laughs> a, little, a little bit fishy about the situation in Isaac's mind. Because what he really should have trusted in here, you know, was his sixth sense. Right? But he didn't. Anyway, he then asked his son to let him feel him. And at this point, Jacob must have been really glad that his mother had been so resourceful and so thorough by covering him with, you know, the goat hair. So let's look at the deceptive covering, verses 21 to 24. 
And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. Don't you just, you know, he's having some doubt here. You can just read it in everything Isaac says. And Jacob went near unto Isaac his father, and he felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he discerned him not, because his hands were hairy, as his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Actually, he doesn't bless him there. That's uh, Actually, it means, so he greeted him as Esau. We'll see, he blesses him after he eats. Verse 24, and he said, Isaac said, still some doubt in his mind, art thou my very son Esau? And he, Jacob, said, I am. <clears throat> because of Rebecca's cleverness with the fine goat hair, let me get that picture back up here again, um, which she had attached to his, you know, around his neck and his hands, Isaac, even though his ears told him that he was hearing Jacob's voice, yet he went with his feelings. The voice was Jacob's, but the hands were Esau's. Now this is really a great lesson to teach us the importance of not basing our faith on our feelings. Feelings can easily lead us to have the wrong perceptions of many important issues. Isaac should have put his faith in his hearing because it was the only one of his senses which was reliable. It was the only one that told him the truth of the situation. And this is a very beautiful illustration of Romans 10:17 that faith cometh by what? By hearing and hearing the word of God. Isaac made a uh, made the final error of the carnal man. What is the final error, mistake of the carnal man? It is going by his feelings. And that's what Isaac did here. Now it's interesting to notice that, uh, however, he still asked one more time about his son's identity. He asked point blank in verse 24, just as he had done up in verse 21, if he was his very son, Esau. And this then led to Jacob's fifth lie. Because once again, he pretended to be who he wasn't, and he purposely lied to his father, saying that he was indeed Esau. Okay? That is the deceptive covering, the de deceptive conversation, the deceptive covering. Let's look at the deceptive cooking. Verse 25. And he said, this is uh, Isaac, Bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Once Isaac was well fed, he was ready to go ahead and proceed with the blessing. Oops, I'm sorry, that's the next section. Uh, let me get back to verse 25. Isaac. Isaac was getting more and more convinced with, with each lie, okay, that came from <clears throat> Jacob. He was getting more convinced that the one in his presence was, after all, Esau. <clears throat> so he decided that it was time to taste what he thought was Esau's venison. And the food was brought to him, 
and it tells us he ate it. Once again, his senses let him down. That which his taste buds told him was Esau's savory venison was really what? Rebecca's goat meat. She must have been a good cook. <laughs> well, there's one, yet one more deception, okay? After Jacob's conversation and his covering and his mother's cooking, had all, all these things had deceived Isaac, he was now going to be deceived by a kiss. Okay, so let's look at the deceptive kiss, verses 26 and 27. And his father Isaac said unto him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he, Jacob, came near and kissed him. And he, Isaac, smelled the smell of his raiment and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is the smell of a field which the Lord hath blessed. After Isaac was fed, as I said earlier, and I shouldn't have, he was now ready to give the blessing. So he asked his son to come near to him and kiss him. Um, and I do want to point out that there are several times, if you look back through the chapter, several times in this episode where Isaac asks his son to come near to him. seems like he comes near and, then, and Jacob must keep backing up and going further away. Because he, he says, come near, and then he went back, and then he has to come near again. So apparently, Jacob kept at a distance, purposely kept at a distance from his father, probably for fear of him hearing, hearing his voice better. Oops, I ran out of pictures. I'll just put this back up. Or, or maybe sensing something to indicate that he was really not who he said he was. So he kept backing up from his father. So anyway, at his father's request, Jacob again went near to, his, to Isaac, uh, this time not to have his hands felt, not to feed him the, the uh, fake venison, but this time to kiss him. And this last deception is perhaps the worst of all because it reminds us of some other deceitful kisses, such as when Joab kissed Amasa before he stabbed him to death in 2 Samuel 29, 20, verse 9. Or the harlot's kiss of Proverbs 7:13, Or, and I know the one you're all thinking of, the most prominent, right, the deceitful kiss of Judas Iscariot on the very night of the Lord's that he betrayed the Lord, the Lord Jesus. When Jacob leaned over to kiss his father, now this is probably why Jake, Isaac wanted him to come over and kiss him. When he leaned over to kiss his father, Isaac took a purposeful whiff of his raiment, his clothing. It seemed that he still had some doubts about the situation, and, and therefore he wanted to, to use one more empirical test and this time he used his sense of smell. When he smelled Esau's goodly raiment on Jacob, he finally became convinced that the son before him was indeed Esau. He smelled like the smell of the field. And so at last he's ready to bless him. 
Now we can be sure that Jacob and Rebecca, and Rebecca, don't you know she was undoubtedly standing again <laughs> right there at the tent door listening to this whole thing, that both she and Jacob were getting somewhat anxious about this uh, situation, especially the time factor, because who could return at any moment? <laughs> yes, Esau could return at any time, and then their whole plan would just blow up in their faces. So they were only all too glad and happy when finally Isaac began the words of the blessing. And those words we're going to have to look at in the second part of our lesson. Next week we'll look at the words of the blessing, and then we will look at the fourth member in this episode, who is, of course, Esau. And we will look at his deadly vengeance.